Well, it's my privilege to introduce once again this week our guest speaker. We were blessed to have Dr. Dennis McGarry with us last week um, as we looked at the life of Gideon. And this week we are going to look and examine God's word, its sufficiency of his word, as well as the adequacy of God's promise for us. Dr. McGarry is on faculty at our seminary over in Deerfield, Illinois. He's professor of Old Testament in Semitic languages, and we are very blessed to have you back with us again. Would you welcome him for me? Thank Thanks, you. Man. Good to be back with you. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 30. <clears throat> this morning we are moving from narrative to poetry, from history to wisdom, from Gideon, whom everybody knows, to Agur, whom nobody knows. Last week we took a close look at a harrowing account that showed us how faithlessness can happen. This morning we will consider words of wisdom that convey the resolute faith of a humble man who is not even an Israelite. Proverbs 30 verses 1 through 9 will focus our attention where it needs to be today, where it needs to be every day if we are to live faithfully before God. I have wondered, how did the early church ever function without the expertise we have today? Yet those Christians turned the world upside down. And they did it without any celebrity testimonies without modern management techniques, without psychotherapy, without mass media, and without most of the means the contemporary church seems to view as essential. All they had was God's Word and the power of His Spirit, but they knew that was sufficient. Proverbs 30 verses 1 through 9 is a remarkable text, <clears throat> in many ways unique among the wisdom compositions, compelling in its teaching. Proverbs 30, 1 through 9 is arguably the most difficult passage in Proverbs, both to translate and to understand. But we do not shy away from passages simply because they're difficult. These challenging portions of Scripture are still the Word of God. And we still have the Holy Spirit to help us understand. And I would maintain that even with the difficulties here, they do not affect the meaning and they do not obscure the clear teaching of these verses. In the context of verses 1 through 9 of Proverbs 30, we find them, these verses, positioned between the words of a king and a concerned mother. 
Leading up to chapter 30, we have Proverbs 25 to 29, which is a robust collection of Solomon's best Proverbs transmitted by the scribes in Hezekiah's court. Proverbs 31, which follows our portion, are the instructions of King Lemuel's mother, who is not particularly happy about the choices her son is making. What is with you, my son, she says. So the words of Agur seem to interrupt a natural progression from instructions directed to an implied reader on the verge of assuming power and a position of leadership, chapters 25 to 29, to instructions directed to that reader who is now king, chapter 31. As chapter 29 concludes, we are ready for King Lemuel to step onto the stage and to make his royal appearance. Instead, we get Agur. But the words of Agur, precisely in this context, highlight qualities <clears throat> that are vital to those who fear the Lord, qualities that are essential for those who desire to grow in their knowledge of God. The words of Agur exhibit humility. The words of Agur embody wonder. The words of Agur urge openness to instruction, God's instruction. Your ability to hear and act on the teaching of these verses, your willingness to appropriate the wisdom of these words could make the difference between a life of effective, unassailable, robust, godly living and a life that falters and fails. The structure and the progression of these nine verses is straightforward. In verses one through three, a weary, exhausted Agur laments his ignorance. In verse 4, he remembers God's incomprehensible power over all creation. Then in verses 5 and 6, he insists that God's word alone is trustworthy. In verses 7 through 9, he responds with a prayer and makes two prayer requests. Despite the interpretive difficulties that plague these verses, Agur's basic concerns and core convictions are clear, and those are the core convictions that God's Word has for us today. In verses 1 through 6, Agur focuses on the sufficiency of God's Word. The sufficiency of God's Word. In verses 7 through 9, Agur emphasizes the adequacy of God's provision. These might seem like no-brainers in a believing community like ours. The sufficiency of God's word, the adequacy of God's provision, these are tenets that we would all affirm. 
But is our adherence to them as robust as our affirmation? What we believe about God's Word will manifest itself in the way we live. What we believe about God's provision will ultimately dictate that to which we aspire. So who is this Agur? Agur is a stranger from Massa, the ethnic designation of a northern Arabian tribe descended from Ishmael's son, Massa. Agur's name would suggest that he is certainly not an Israelite, although he is evidently well-versed in Israelite traditions. Agur knows what he doesn't know. In chapters 28 and 29, the wise are confident about wisdom's availability, wisdom's accessibility. Agur's experience is that wisdom is elusive. Those opening verses establish this. He says, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. I do not have. I have not learned. I do not have. Verses 1 through 3 describe Agur's self-understanding, which is really a humbling of himself. He's not comparing himself to other humans because it's clear from verse 4 that he's rather thinking about his standing before God. But he begins with a confession of ignorance on the order of what we find in Psalm 73, verse 22. The psalmist says, I was ignorant, same word we have here in verse 2, and lacking knowledge, I was a beast with you. It is worth noting, I believe, that both Agur and the psalmist combine a confession of ignorance with a profession of faith and an exaltation in the insight that comes from God alone. Despite considerable effort, Agur has not acquired wisdom, which he defines as knowledge of the Holy One. Notice, Agur's self-humbling in verse 2 is not a tactic for gaining God's sympathy and help. He's not speaking as someone here begging for mercy. His protest is a way of glorifying a higher kind of wisdom, the knowledge of God's words, mentioned in verse 5, and a more elevated spiritual stance, that is, a humble faithfulness to God's will, which he develops in verses 6 through 9. Sheer determination and hard work have not proved enough. Now that first line of verse 2 has been variously translated. The root meaning of the word that's rendered stupid in many of your translations is actually a word meaning beast. And it retains that connotation here. 
referring to a person who does not have the rationality that differentiates people from animals. Agur is asserting, I'm more beast than I am man. He regards himself to be, as it were, animal-like in his ignorance, not having human understanding. Now, of course, the self-abasement of verses 1 through 3 is Semitic hyperbole. It's exaggeration. It is a low anthropology that is actually an expression of reverence. Agur's self-abasement and weariness elevate, extol the very thing he seeks and cannot attain on his own, and that is God's wisdom. Agur's confession conveys poignantly the limits of human understanding and the elusiveness of wisdom. I am the most ignorant of men, he says, and I have not human understanding. I can honestly say this was not my perspective when I started my seminary education. I went to a Bible college. My major was pre-seminary studies. When I started seminary, I had already taken three years of systematic theology. I had all of the ologies. I had completed three years of Greek. I even took a year of Hebrew. I was ready to dazzle my seminary professors with my theological acumen and my ability to parse verbs. Well, that never happened. The problem was not my undergrad training. The problem was me, my perspective. I entered seminary having knowledge, not as much as I thought I had, but I did not have wisdom. And I was seriously lacking in my knowledge of the Holy One. Agur laments, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. What he does know is the limits of his knowledge. The parallel lines there in verse 3 suggest that to learn wisdom is to gain the knowledge of God. We see this elsewhere. Uh, for example, Job and his friends were seeking wisdom in terms of a concept or a notion, uh, an explanatory principle that would make sense of everything. Their efforts failed miserably. And they were doomed to fail because wisdom is not a principle of explanation. Job's friends offered explanations, and some of them were even theologically sound. But Job's friends were not participating in wisdom. Their lack of understanding was all too evident. They could not see what they needed to see. Wisdom is comprised of both reason and knowledge. 
with many different applications. Reason is the instrumental aspect of wisdom. It's the ability to discern knowledge and to act successfully. Knowledge of causes, motives, that's understanding. What the books of Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes teach us is that wisdom is relational. Wisdom is participatory. Wisdom requires engagement. It requires action, principally two actions, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Wisdom requires a decision on the part of each one of us, each one of us here today, a decision to be wise. It is a decision only you as an individual can make. No one can make that for you. As a faculty member at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I can certify that my students have successfully completed a catalog prescribed course of study, but I cannot certify that my students will be wise. We as a seminary can vouch for our students' biblical and theological knowledge, but we cannot confirm that every one of our graduates will fear the Lord. My institution can attest to our students' people skills, but we cannot confirm that our graduates will turn away from evil. Wisdom is participatory. Wisdom requires individual, personal engagement and action, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. It is only in a personal relationship with God, a relationship that we can have through Jesus Christ, that one will truly be wise. In our chaotic lives of constant stop, start, stop, start, short attention span mental habits, with an endless stream of momentarily visible Twitter feed fragments of information, we have been reduced to one splinter factoid after another. And we're trying to patch together a life worth living. That is difficult. But the problem is not just that we are fidgety and distracted, it's that our information, however much we have, is no basis for a life. Our society is saturated with information, much of which is worthless. And our culture is collapsing under the weight of what we know. Our obsession with information, our preoccupation with knowledge has cluttered and clogged the highway to discernment. This has made being wise exceedingly difficult, but not impossible. As T.S. Eliot put it so well, 
All our knowledge only brings us closer to our ignorance. And all our ignorance closer to death. But closer to death, no closer to God. And then he asked the question that hangs over our society. Where is the life we have lost in living? We need God to rescue us from our information and even from our knowledge. Agur is painfully aware of his ignorance and the fact that he lacks wisdom. Well, as mysteriously <clears throat> and abruptly <clears throat> as lament turns to affirmation and trust, such as we have in Psalm 73, Agur's anguish turns to reverence for the Holy One. Verse 4 brings a flurry of rhetorical questions, which are then reprised with a double question and followed by a challenge to respond to them. A rhetorical question is not asking for information. A rhetorical question is a question that everybody knows the answer to. We have here four questions beginning with who and two questions beginning with what. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. With eyes now on God, Agur builds a case in cosmic terms that God alone is the source of wisdom. Agur's four who questions, the answer to which are, well, no one other than God, herald God's power and by implication, human incapacity. Agur encompasses creation, notice, by moving vertically from earth to heaven and then horizontally the ends of the earth, and by including all of the elements, we have fire, heaven, air, water, and earth. No human being has the capability of doing godlike things, traversing the universe, controlling the elements, creating the world. This is a fact known to all, and Agur brings it to the fore here to remind the readers of their own ignorance. We as humans must always be aware that we are infinitely less powerful and infinitely less wise than God. Therefore, we must rely on God and His Word. One after another, Agur's questions recall God's activity and stir amazement and compel humility. Agur's rhetorical who question culminates with two what questions. The for who questions anticipate God as the answer, and that would be the answer to the first what question. 
The answer to the second question, what is the name of his son, is less clear. Son has been interpreted as the community of Israel. But the tradition of Israel as a son of God is foreign to the book of Proverbs. I think that's unlikely. Other scholars make a change to the text and they read plural, sons, as a reference to heavenly beings. That's unnecessary. It's always best to read the text that is there and then interpret it. Let me suggest that it makes better sense to understand son here as son is understood throughout the book of Proverbs. That is, son as the student of wisdom. Son as any person who learns wisdom in this context, that would be Agur. The last line of verse 4, surely you know, notice, counters what Agur declared back in verse 2. I do not know, thus bringing that section to a close. That exclamation reminds us that we know very well that no one fits the description characterized by the who questions other than God. So just like the psalmist, Agur moves from despair and fatigue to renewed conviction by recalling what he does know. It's what we know this morning. God's incomprehensible power. Well, given the fact that God alone is the source of wisdom, Agur urges reliance upon God's word. In verse 5, he says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. Far superior to human wisdom is God's revealed word because it alone is pure in the sense of being refined and devoid of any dross of falsehood. This is actually a near verbatim citation of David's song of praise from 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one. David declares, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. What Agur is asserting here is that God's word is trustworthy. Look what he says here. Every word of God, or <clears throat> the entire utterance of God, is pure <clears throat> or flawless. Now, by flawless or fire-tested does not mean hardened like steel, but rather that the quality of the metal has been proved so that all dross is removed. It's that pure word that declares that God is a shield a strong protection for those who would seek refuge in Him. In other words, God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. <clears throat> this verse actually echoes the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. 
You shall not add to the word that I am commanding you, Moses says, nor shall you subtract from it so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. No one can add to God's words, that is, develop or surpass them without muddying and distorting the truth. Strikingly, even as Agur identifies God as the source of wisdom, he accentuates his sense of divine mystery. He uses four different names or descriptors of God. In verse 3, Kadoshim, Holy One. Verse 5, Eloah, God. The first line of verse 9, Yahweh. The second line of verse 9, Elohai, my God. Each of those sparking fresh reflection on God himself. Agur's usage shows us that no single name for God is adequate. That's why there are so many. Agur is warning here about false prophecies being added to true ones. This is a huge problem throughout Israel's history. This is a huge problem today in the believing community. We are living in an age of deception. The temptation, of course, is to improve on the text if not by actually adding new material, then by interpreting it in ways that make more of a passage's teaching than's really there. It's what the Apostle Paul called in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, going beyond what is written. And of course, the penalty for adding to God's words is a judgment from God, which will make it clear that the one who does this is a deceiver. If we believe the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to be the inspired word of God without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation of men, and the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and practice, then we should spare no effort to understand them. And we should have no commitment other than to say exactly what they say. No more, no less. If you falter on Scripture, if you accommodate your worldview on the word, the, your view on the Word of God to satisfy the demands of our crumbling culture, then you might as well pack it up. It's over. According to verses 1 through 6, God's word is sufficient, and it's the sufficiency of God's word that will protect you. In verses 7 through 9, we see that the adequacy of God's provision will sustain you. Finally, Agur prays. The symmetry of this prayer, and I should draw your attention to the fact this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. The symmetry of this prayer mirrors the balanced, moderate life that Agur is requesting. Look at what he prays. 
Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Agur has two prayer requests. The suggestion has been made that the two requests are found in the second part of verse 8. Do not give me poverty and do not give me wealth. But the structure of these verses would indicate that what Agor is praying for is one, first line of verse 8, to be kept free of deceit, and then secondly, to receive a sufficiency for daily needs, latter part of verse 8. That is, my apportioned bread. No more no less. He says, remove from me falsehood and lying. Agur is not asking to be protected against the deceit of others here, but to be prevented from being deceitful himself. Keep falsehood and lying far from me. He's concerned throughout with his spiritual well-being, much more so than the harm that other people might cause him and others. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me. He doesn't say, help me to be a good steward of what I have. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Now the implication here is that God designates a certain amount of food for everyone as their proper portion. Now individuals may receive more or less than this for reasons other not necessarily depending upon themselves, but Agur is fully aware of his weaknesses, both his tendency to forget God when life is too easy and his tendency to turn in desperation away from God when life is too difficult. Verse 9 states the reason or the goal for Agur's request that God gave, gives him. Remember, neither poverty nor riches in that second request. What does the text say? lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Please notice, it is the glory of God, not Agur's personal need that motivates these prayer requests. On the one hand, if he became fully satisfied, he runs the risk of becoming a scoffer. The normally positive good of being satisfied becomes negative when one is satisfied beyond his allotted portion. Without the need for God to intervene and give the allotted food, even Agur fears slipping into a scoffing haughtiness, denying and denouncing God's gracious provision. Who's the Lord? Abundant wealth encourages arrogant self-sufficiency. 
a lost appreciation of one's dependence upon God and a denial of God's most basic requirements. The overconfidence that comes with wealth and success is condemned throughout Scripture. Not that wealth and success are condemned, but the overconfidence that destroys us. On the other hand, if he became destitute, he might steal. Poverty all too easily drives one to steal from others. And as the text says, to lay hold of or grasp God's name. Some of the translations translate profane there. This is a unique usage of this verb because it implies taking possession of God's name and misusing it for one's own advantage. For example, holding God accountable for one's situation. In effect, making God a partner in crime. Stealing may convince others that the Lord is of no help or that His laws are impossible to keep. It may also suggest that God's worshipers are hypocrites. Stealing not only involves a transgression of the Eighth Commandment, but may also lead the suspected thief to take oaths of innocence and abuse God's name, thereby violating the Third Commandment. It's downhill from there. Stealing and lying are among the actions that demonstrate that Israel does not know God. If you believe the Word of God is trustworthy then you will be able to allow the adequacy of God's provision to sustain you. Agur wants God to shape his life, to work in his life, to do so in such a way that he will not be inclined towards sin. He's acutely aware that God's name is at stake in his life, as the name of God is at stake in ours. There will be the temptation to forget God when life is going well. To forget the one who provides for us every day. There will also be a temptation to turn away from God when you are struggling Struggling to make sense of what's going on around you. Struggling to make ends meet. Scrambling to meet the challenges of life. Wondering if God is even aware of what you're going through. Agur simply desires what God has apportioned for him. No more, no less. Enough is enough. Agur doesn't need to impress God, and neither do we. He just wants to be wise. He just wants to be faithful. So what does this passage call upon us to do? Let me suggest a few things for you. One, Ask God to give you what he has apportioned for you this week. Secondly, ask him for the strength to accomplish the tasks that he puts before you. Third, 
Ask him for discernment to know when your priorities are shifting. And finally, ask him to help you keep life in balance, especially in these tumultuous days. It's difficult, but it is not impossible because God is with us. The sufficiency of God's word will protect you. The adequacy of God's provision will sustain you. This is the word of God and it is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this portion of Scripture and for the insight that it provides us of your desire for us and of your incomparable power and capability and care. I pray that you would enable us to continue to grow in our desire to be wise to realize that that wisdom is grounded in a knowledge of you. I pray that you would accomplish this week through each one of these, your people, all that would bring honor and glory to your name so that others will want to know how it is even possible. Provide opportunities, Father, for us to share the gospel to share the work that you are doing in our lives, work that you are doing this moment around the world. So we commit ourselves to you and thank you for your goodness and your care and for the life we have through Christ in whose name we pray, amen.